we come now to questions. Point of order. Point of order. Point of order. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Um, just uh, in relationship to your previous reflections, last sitting uh, week, I raised a point in relationship to speaking ruler's rulings 20551 around ministers commencing their answers um, to a question with a political attack. At the time, you mentioned you were going to um, go back and reflect on it, and I was just wondering whether um, you had any views on um, the events of last week and how we move forward in relationship to that. I'll come back to you. Uh, first uh, question, oral question in the name of Suze Redmayne. Mr Speaker, my question is to the Minister of Finance and asks, what recent reports has she seen on New Zealand's fiscal position? Mr Speaker, I received Treasury's briefing to the incoming Minister, which was publicly released a week and a half ago. The BIM told me that between 2019 and 2023, the International Monetary Fund has calculated according to their own cross-country measure, that net debt in New Zealand increased by 18% of GDP. 18% of GDP. Supplementary, Mr Speaker. Is that increase in debt greater or less than in other comparable countries? Well, Mr Speaker, as I said, the increase in New Zealand's net debt over the period 2019 to 23 was 18% of GDP on the IMF's measure. Treasury's BIM tells me that Australia's net debt over this period rose by only 2%. Den Denmark and Ireland's net debt reduced, and the average increase across 32 advanced economies was only 4%. Supplementary, Mr Speaker. Was that 18% increase in net debt due to COVID? Mr Speaker, in part, it will have been, but I am reliably informed that all countries in the world suffered from COVID. So COVID is no excuse for New Zealand to have such a large increase in its debt. Supplementary, Mr Speaker, how high is New Zealand's... Supplementary, Honourable David Seymour. Uh, did the previous government use this extraordinary 18% of GDP expansion uh, in public debt to build valuable infrastructure or leave some other legacy that would assist future New Zealanders in paying that debt off? It's very Mr. much Speaker, uh, down, very borderline, that question. But, uh, Mr Speaker, the a question... A reasonable answer might be, uh, might be forthcoming. Mr Speaker, the question New Zealanders often ask me is, has there ever been a government that has spent so much but delivered so little okay, as the last... Suze Redmayne. Mr Speaker, how high is New Zealand's net debt compared to previous years? Mr Speaker, historical comparisons are made a little difficult by the fact that in 2022, the previous finance minister changed the definition of net debt in a way that instantly lowered it by about 20 percentage points of GDP. However, if you use the old established measure of net debt, it is evident that New Zealand's net debt this year is forecast to be 44% of GDP, compared to 22% when National left office in 2017. Furthermore, net debt of 44% is the highest it has been in New Zealand in 30 years. Supplementary. Supplementary, Honourable Grant Robertson. Can the Minister confirm that two paragraphs below the one she quoted in her primary answer, the Treasury told her in their BIM that, nevertheless, New Zealand's debt remains low relative to other advanced economies. The average government debt among advanced economies in 2023 was 47% of GDP, compared with 24% for New Zealand. Mr Speaker... The Treasury's BIM also says. Honourable Nicola Willis. The Treasury's BIM also says, as a small open economy vulnerable to external shocks and natural disasters, New Zealand needs to retain a large buffer for emergencies. What the member should understand is that New Zealand should always have relatively low debt compared to most other advanced economies, and it is silly to compare New Zealand's debt with countries like the United States and Japan. That minister eroded New Zealand's buffer thanks to the big spending of the previous Labor government. 
point, point of order, Mr Speaker. A point of order. Um, that was a very specific question asking about a very specific paragraph in the BIM that the member's primary answer was about, and I didn't receive an answer to that question. Well, I don't think you could say it wasn't addressed. Um, and I think that's one of the problems, isn't it, that often questions are asked that don't elicit the answer that members, members wanting. It wasn't that fine. Um, it wasn't all of that fine a question. A, a, the BIM is quite a lengthy document. Uh, Honourable Point of order, Nicola Willis. I am happy Willis. to keep reading from the BIM to uh, inform the Minister about how this debt uh, came to be and the structural deficit that he left New Zealand in, if he'd like. Uh, sorry, it's, um, it's not a particularly helpful uh, uh, point of order. Supplementary, Mr Supplementary, Honourable Grant Robertson. Can the Minister confirm that the paragraph after the paragraph that I just quoted in my question says, in part, the, quote, the Crown balance sheet continues to have significant resilience and flexibility to respond to future events? Uh, the, the member should read the full quotes which also say current spending exceeds current revenues. The Treasury estimates much of this gap is structural, reflecting a mix of short and long-term drivers. A substantial fiscal consolidation is required, and that, Mr Speaker, is what this responsible government is doing. Thank you. Question number two, in the name of the Right Honourable Chris Sipkins. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Does he stand by all of his government's statements and actions? Uh, yes, and in particular I stand by this government's recent actions to begin restoring law, to, law and order and cracking down on crime by removing taxpayer funding for Section 27 reports to further discount sentences and by chucking out Labor's prison reduction targets. So uh, New Zealand has voted for a government that's going to restore law and order, deal with victims over criminals, and that's what we're going to get on and do. Who's correct when it comes to the proposed government legislation on treaty principles? The Prime Minister, when he said, well, we've never been open-minded. We've always said there's no intention, no commitment, no support for it beyond first reading. Or David Seymour, who said, but ultimately the bit I don't believe is he won't change his mind. Well, we have a coalition agreement that says we're going to support a bill through to first reading, and that's no commitment beyond that. Is David Seymour correct that he's lost his nerve on the Treaty Principles Bill? Uh, I reject the member's assertion, but what I'd say is that member, that member should be the one that is nervous, because um, when Kieran McInaldi starts shaving off that beard, he needs to be ready to go. And uh, as I would have said, as we observed over summer, who was the de facto leader of the Labor Party? Michael Wood. Supplementary question. Is it acceptable for one of his ministers to tell the media that the Prime Minister's lost his nerve and he doesn't believe the Prime Minister's being truthful with the public? Well, I reject that member's assertion on that question. What I'd say to you is that we are a coalition government. We are a coalition government. We have different views, different perspectives, and we are aligned on the things that matter, which is getting things done, cleaning up after your government's mess, so that's what we're going to get on to do. Entry question. Was News Hub incorrect when they quoted David Seymour saying, ultimately the bit I don't believe is he won't change his mind and the public, if the public really wants it? Well, I can tell you David Seymour's doing a great job. He's going to make sure that we get our kids back in school. He's got special delegations getting kids back into school, which is something that this government and you as Education Minister didn't care about. A point of order. I accept my questions are relatively political in nature, but the Prime Minister hasn't addressed any of them. Well, I think you've answered your own question with um, <laughs> or assertion. They are political in nature. But if the Prime Minister would like to make a further comment on that previous question... Uh, it's all good. Do you want to, uh, <laughs> if any minister other than David Seymour was to claim publicly that the Prime Minister had lost his nerve and wasn't being truthful with the public, would they still be a minister? Oh, I support all of my ministers. They're doing a fantastic job. They're doing a fantastic job. The person, the only member in this whole House who should be nervous is the person answering the questions. If, if David Seymour doesn't believe the public should be able to trust the word of the Prime Minister, why should the public? We have a coalition agreement, it's crystal clear. We're going to support a bill to first reading, and there is no commitment beyond that. Mr Speaker. Does he agree then with the Right Honourable Winston Peters about David Seymour? Well, it's disgraceful that somebody is so desperate 
and this petty, childish schoolboy behaviour just won't do. Point of order. Point of order. Point of order, right on. Mr. Mr. Speaker, this is a matter of chronology, and that questioner did not say when that statement was made, and therefore the Prime Minister could not be responsible for that and get a life and learn how this process works. Order, Mr. Speaker. Point of order, Mr. Speaker. It's immaterial when Winston Peters said that. I didn't ask him whether he agreed with the Deputy Prime Minister. I asked him whether he agreed with the Right Honourable Winston Peters, who I still believe is Winston Peters even if he has a different job. Uh, well, you better ask the question again. Well, happily, Mr well, Speaker. I'll tell you what, try and keep it contemporary, because it's, it, it, going back in history is not good for us. D does he agree with the Right Honourable... Well, it might not be good for the government, Mr Speaker. Does he agree with the Right Honourable Winston Peters about David Seymour? Well, it's disgraceful that somebody is so desperate. This petty, childish schoolboy behaviour just won't do. Point of order. Mr. Speaker, the Prime Minister is responsible for those obligations and duties that he has undertaken from the day he first took the job on, and not a day earlier. And in this case, this, case, this question should be ruled out. Mr. Speaker, it, unless the Speaker was to rule out that any statements made by anyone other than a minister were not the Prime Minister's responsibility, we couldn't ask him whether he agreed with anything. Well, uh, just... and, and actually, nor could many of the government's patsy questions be allowed by that criteria either. Just, um, just had a ruling that uh, makes it very clear that the Prime Minister is responsible for uh, things that relate to his government uh, or her government. Uh, and uh, there is a point that if the statement relates to a time when the Prime Minister, when the, the current Prime Minister was not Prime Minister, then uh, that, that might be the case. But I actually think, hold on, hang on, hold on. I don't want to have to stand up on it. Um, the, I, I think this is a question the Prime Minister is probably capable of answering. Speaking of the point of order. Yep. Um, Mr Speaker, cl clearly ministers can be asked about whether or not they agree with statements made by other members or indeed any members of the public, but it's useful for the House to know exactly what time period the member is being asked to reflect upon. Uh, it may well be that Mr Peter's comment was talking about the childish behaviour of the Labour Party, for example. Uh, so, but we don't know because the uh, Leader of the Opposition hasn't given a time period. Point of order, point of order Mr Speaker. I ask you to reflect on the ruling that you have just indicated uh, and the, uh, consider that in light of question number one, which was a government question to the Minister of Finance that was all about a period in which she was not a minister and yet she was quoting liberally from a document about something that she did not have responsibility for at the time. If you are ruling that the only thing ministers can be asked about is stuff that has happened since the election, then in the entirety of question one was out of order. No, don't need further on this. But I'll come to you if I need to, believe me. Um, the, uh, the, firstly, on question one, that question uh, relates entirely uh, to reports that the Minister has seen. That's perfectly and legitimate. And then if you look at all of the subs that came in, and I listened to them carefully, and you'll recall that I did cut one of them off, uh, then they were all about the answers given by the Minister, uh, and they related to current figures. So that's, that's uh, that dealt with. Um, i better hear from uh, Mr Bishop. So this, oh, you're over it, OK? That's... Um, uh, David Seymour, Honourable David Seymour. Thank you, Mr. Is this a point of order or, or what? I, I think I might be able to assist with it, yes. No, well, I don't, I don't want your assistance. You're either taking a new yeah. point of order or. Uh, not. Look, you're lost, Mr. Speaker. <laughs> oh, yep. Arrogant. I've got a very long memory. Um, so, could we have the question one more time? And I think it would be useful to put context around that. Does he agree with the Right Honourable Winston Peters about David Seymour? Well, it's disgraceful that somebody is so desperate. This petty, childish schoolboy behaviour just won't do. What I'm going to say to you is that this is a coalition government of three parties. We have different views from time to time, and that's actually quite OK. It's quite healthy and it's quite constructive. And unlike that previous government that was all about control and spin and management, I have not heard... And the, and the whole time since he's become Leader of the Opposition, we haven't had one question on the economy, not one on health, not one on education, not one on housing, not one on infrastructure. 
Question number three, uh, in the name of Debbie Nauriwapaka. I can help. Uh, tēnā koe te pika. Uh, my question is to the Prime Minister. Does he stand by all his government's policies and actions? Uh, yes, and particularly in the context they're made, and particularly about our efforts to try and improve Māori health and education outcomes for young Māori. Supplementary. Does he agree with Te Hunga Roya Māori or Aotearoa, the New Zealand Law Society and the New Zealand Bar Association that scrapping funding for Section 27 reports will disproportionately impact Māori, undermine rehabilitation and lead to higher rates of offending, and if not, why not? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, the reality is that Māori are higher victims of crime than anybody in this country, and we're making sure that Māori feel safe in their own businesses, their homes and their communities. Supplementary. Does he accept that his policy will create a double standard in sentencing for the wealthy who can afford to privately fund their own Section 27 reports and for those who cannot? Uh, no, I don't. The intention of Section 27 reports was that for someone could bring a friend or a family member to speak to their past, that was what was intended to happen. Instead, what's happened is there's been a cottage industry of reports, often prepared by people who don't even know the, victim, uh, the, the offender. So the reality is uh, we're putting it back to its original purpose. That option still exists and will continue to exist. Supplementary. What work is this government doing to ensure that Māori and those on lower incomes will not be unfairly sentenced as a result of this policy? Well, um, we are making sure that we actually have a fair system that is fair and stands up for the victims of crime, doesn't stand up for the offenders. Uh, you've forgotten me so early, no, Mr Speaker. No, Does he find it acceptable that Māori women make up 64% of the present female population, while Māori men make up 50% of the male prison population? And if not, what are his government's solutions to reduce that number and ensure it doesn't increase as a result of this policy? Uh, no, I don't find it acceptable, and that's why we're working so hard on lowering crime. Point of order. On the couch. Uh, point, point of order. I don't think he answered that question, uh, Mr Speaker. Yeah, I know, but that's, that's not the test. What is the point? The point of order. Yeah. What, what, what is the point of order? The point of order was is that he didn't answer the question around whether he finds it acceptable and what, what is this government going to do about it? He said he did. Well, I think he, I think he did. That's yeah. what Hansel showed there was an answer to that. Might not be the answer you want, uh, but please carry on. Okay, question number four in the name of Ryan Hamilton. Uh, thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Health. What recent announcement has the Minister made to increase the number of New Zealand trained doctors? Thank you, Mr Speaker. Just two hours ago, the Government completed another key commitment from our 100-day plan, the signing of a Memorandum of Understanding for a third medical school. This is the first step in our process to help increase the number of New Zealand trained doctors. Supplementary. Brian Hamilton. What are the next steps following today's signing of the MOU? The signing of the MOU enables the Ministry of Health and the University of Waikato to progress with establishing a business case and carrying out a cost-benefit analysis as described in the National Act Coalition Agreement. This is an important step as our country faces a dire shortage of Kiwi doctors, with many planning to retire over the next 10 years. Tim van der Molen. What is the significance of the MOU for our provincial and rural communities? Mr Speaker, many provincial and rural communities are already experiencing large shortages of doctors, and with many GPs planning to retire over the next 10 years, this issue will only get worse. A medical school which further considers the needs of rural areas will help ease the pressure felt on rural health care. Supplementary. Supplementary. Uh, Tim van der How will this impact New Zealand's ongoing workforce shortage? Mr Speaker, New Zealanders have been facing longer and longer delays in accessing health care. Tackling the workforce crisis is key to solving this issue. With this initiative, we aim to retain more New Zealanders in our domestic medical school programmes, giving more than 300 New Zealand students, given more than 300 New Zealand students each year, have been training in Australian medical schools. We will train more homegrown, culturally competent New Zealand doctors. Will the full cost-benefit analysis of the proposed Waikato Medical School, committed to in the National Act Coalition Agreement, include comparisons with the costs and benefits 
of training additional medical students at New Zealand's existing medical schools. Uh, Mr Speaker, the Ministry of Health is currently scoping out what the cost-benefit analysis in the business case will look like and be happy to keep the member informed as that progresses. <clears throat> question number five, in the name of the Honourable Karen McAnulty. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Local Government. Does he stand by his statement that he is confident repealing the affordable water reforms will be, quote, cheaper? Mr Speaker. The Honourable Simeon Brown. Thank you, uh, Mr. Speaker. My, uh, Mr. Speaker, I am confident that the local water done well will be implemented cheaper than the previous government's three waters reform that cost the taxpayers over $1.2 billion with very little to show for it. My focus is ensuring this government delivers what the vast majority of councils have consistently asked for, which is local water done well. It means local assets and local council control with the flexibility to structure their delivery of services in a way that works best for them and their communities. Supplementary. When the Minister uses the term cheaper, does he mean cheaper for ratepayers? Well, ultimately, councils set rates for their local communities, and this is about ensuring that councils can access the long-term funding and financing tools they need so they can deliver the infrastructure. This will be far cheaper than what that government was proposing and the over billion dollars spent with nothing getting delivered. Supplementary. Supplementary. Why won't the minister guarantee that his repeal and replacement will be cheaper for ratepayers? Well, it will be cheaper for ratepayers because we won't be spending a billion dollars like the last government did with nothing to show for it. The last government thought there was a magic money tree where they could throw around and apparently solve problems, but actually they didn't, after six years, even solve this problem for local councils. Supplementary. To the Minister, is he aware of advice from the DIA, currently still available on the DIA website, that states what he is proposing as a replacement to the affordable water reforms won't work and will lead to higher rates for ratepayers? Well, there's a range of advice uh, out there in terms of what uh, the Minister may be pointing to, but what I would say is that this is going to give councils what they asked for, which is ensuring they can deliver and have the long-term funding and financing tools that they need. Mayors across this country oppose that government's plan. They oppose the mega-entities, the force-mandated bureaucracies on local communities. We believe in local councils choosing and delivering for their local communities. Supplementary. Isn't it actually the case that the Minister is setting things up so that when rates inevitably rise, unaffordably for some, he can blame councils instead of taking responsibility himself? Well, uh, the, la the last government um, set up these, that most of these entities weren't going to come into force until 2026. So the rates that are being proposed over the next couple of years uh, were actually going to be proposed regardless of that government's reforms. Now, councils are ultimately responsible. We're giving the long-term funding and financing tools that councils need so they can invest sustainably and in a fiscally responsible manner in water infrastructure for their local communities. Question number six, in the name of Ricardo Mendes-March. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister for Social Development and Employment and asks, Will indexing benefit levels to inflation rather than wages result in lower increases to benefits? Honourable Louise Upson. Thank you, Mr Speaker. That will depend on the actual increase in inflation and increase in wages in the given year, and of course how you measure inflation and wages. For the last 31 of 35 years, main benefits have been indexed to the Consumer Price Index as a measure of inflation to ensure they increase with the cost of living. We think it is fair to protect the real purchasing power of those on main benefits, and this is the approach our government is taking. Why is it the case, then, that projections given to me via parliamentary written answers show that people will see lower increases to benefits? Uh, Mr Speaker, the difference uh, this year will be approximately $2. Uh, and our government is absolutely focused on, first of all, reducing the number of people on job seeker benefit, because we've seen a blowout in dependency under the last government. And also, we are focused on the reducing the cost of living and the pressures that households, those receiving benefits and on low incomes, are facing. 
Does she accept that because a person on the job seeker is likely to be up to $50 worse off by the end of the decade, that demand for hardship grants and advances will increase under her government? Uh, Mr Speaker, so the member's talking about projections 10 years out. Um, if we look at it in the one year, it's $2, $2 a week. Uh, this government is relentlessly focused on getting the economy back to where it was so there are more opportunities, higher incomes, and the cost of living is not presenting the same level of pressure and hardship that Kiwi families are facing today. That is affecting those on benefit as well as those on low incomes, and there is a need to balance the two. Why won't she index benefits to wages or inflation, whichever is higher, to ensure everyone is supported in good and bad times? Uh, Mr Speaker, this government has made the decision to be consistent, uh, to uh, follow what has been done in 31 of the last five years, uh, which is to increase it based on uh, CPI. What we won't do is allow a young person who goes on to the job seeker benefit under the age of 20 to have a forecast of 24 years on welfare. We won't be doing that. Is she confident that disabled people are treated with respect and dignity uh, when they are forced to continuously prove lifelong medical conditions to remain on the supported living payment as opposed to going on to the job seeker benefit? Not sure it's related to the primary, but I'll answer it anyway. Uh, we, we, we have a range of policies in place in New Zealand for the welfare system uh, that do two things. Uh, it, uh, the check-in with um, frontline staff also ensures that somebody's uh, needs for support are being met. Uh, I think it is fair to uh, working New Zealanders who fund the welfare system uh, that we ensure that those who are receiving support uh, have regular check-ins, uh, and in some cases that means reapplying for benefits to make sure that the setting is right. Their check-ins include having to continuously prove lifelong medical conditions? Uh, Mr Speaker, that's the way it's been for many years and I don't forecast it's going to change. It's right. Question number seven, in the name of Katie Nimmin. Mr Speaker, my question is to the Minister of Local Government. What recent announcements has he made about water infrastructure? Oh, thank you, uh, Mr Speaker, and thank you to the member for that question. The Coalition Government is restoring council ownership and control of water assets by replacing Labor's Three Waters legislation. Three Waters was divisive and hugely unpopular, and it would have all it would have delivered was a mega co-governed bureaucracy. We heard the concerns that many New Zealanders had with the proposals, which is why we are committed to repealing Three Waters and replacing it with local water done well. Supplementary. Why is the government repealing the Water Services Entity Act 2022? Well, Mr. Mr Speaker, as I said, the last government's proposals would simply have created mega co-governed bureaucracies and failed to actually address the infrastructure challenges that New Zealand councils are, are facing. Later today, I will be starting the process to repeal Three Waters. Right. This was part of the, 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 the government's 100-day plan. I acknowledge our partners ACT and New Zealand First for their support in this. Supplementary. What are the next steps in making sure that local water is done well? Well, good question, Mr Speaker. There will be two further bills progressing through Parliament to transition to local water done well. The first bill will provide streamlined requirements for establishing council-controlled organisations, enabling councils to start shifting the delivery of water services. And a second bill to provide for a long-term replacement regime will be introduced in December this year. This will set out the long-term requirements for financial sustainability, provide for a complete economic regulation regime and a new range of structural and financial tools. Supplementary. How will local water done well help councils prepare for future water infrastructure? Well, Mr Speaker, New Zealand's water infrastructure is facing significant challenges and local water done well will enable councils to have the tools that they need to access long-term funding and financing. Local Water Done Well recognise the importance of local decision-making and flexibility for communities and councils to determine how their water services should be delivered in the future, rather than the government coming over top like the former government. That's right. Question number eight, and over the Honourable Jan Tanetti. 
Thank you, Mr Speaker. To the Minister of Education, does she stand by all her statements and actions? The Honourable Erica Stanford. Mr Speaker, yes. In particular, the actions that I took earlier this year to support the rollout of NCA Level 1. On becoming the Minister of Education, it was very concerning to find that the implementation of NCA Level 1 standards had been rushed without providing key components to teachers like subject learning outcomes or external assessment, assessment exemplars. After being contacted by subject associations and teachers who raised their serious concerns, this government took immediate actions to produce subject learning outcomes for all Level 1 subjects, and we managed to get this work done with the help of those subject associations, so they were delivered to teachers at the start of Term 1. The NZQA exemplars were not going to be released until May this year, when much of the teaching would have already taken place. On becoming the Minister, I instructed NZQA to urgently expedite the availability of all Level 1 exemplars, and exemplars for science standards were available before the start of Term 1, while other subjects will become available through February and March, much earlier than the May deadline. Mr Speaker, this Government wants students to succeed, and we have stepped in to ensure teachers have the tools they need for NCA Level 1, which the previous Government failed to do in their rush to implement. I just um, say to the Minister that that was an exceptionally long answer, well, broad, and I appreciate it comes probably from the Ministry, yeah. and that uh, <laughs> it's not unusual for them to write <laughs> long documents like that. But um, I wouldn't listen uh, to them too much. The, the Honourable Jantinetti. How many schools are currently facing cuts to building projects? I'm pleased the minister, uh, or oh, the ex-minister, asked that question. Uh, Mr. Speaker, on becoming the minister, it was very concerning to find that there was an enormous pipeline of school build projects that were not able to be delivered on. Schools had had their expectations raised, building costs had skyrocketed. Uh, there were property, properties that were being uh, designed uh, with bespoke arrangements and architecturally designed buildings. Uh, school property, uh, schools had had their expectations raised uh, and there was poor communication. And I'd like to just point out that the Minister herself said in a recent uh, article, you've got schools that have been really suffering and suffering for quite some time. That, uh, Mr Speaker, is the point. This has been ongoing and left to us by this, the previous government. And now we're having to come to a point where this government are having to tidy up a list of schools that I am still coming to grips with, the total number. Speaker. Does she stand by her statement? You know it is, and it's part of, that is, the increasing costs of building, but part of it is because we are building these extremely bespoke classrooms rather than just going, look, here is option A, option B and option C. And if so, is she aware that the Ministry of Education currently has a modular building programme and off-site classroom construction op options with a suite of standard designs introduced in 2018, helpfully available on the Ministry's website for her reference? Yeah, well, Mr that's Speaker. Some, that's one all on the question and answer, isn't it? So, uh, the uh, Honourable Erica Stanford. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I'm pleased that the member asked that question. The point is that the Ministry are only just at this point in time starting to roll that out. The, the, pipeline, the pipeline that we are dealing with that runs into the billions of dollars includes architecturally designed classrooms that teachers have spent many hours outside the classroom uh, dealing with. Uh, and many, many classrooms in, in that pipeline are in exactly that position. I have now directed the Ministry to make sure that we have a repeatable modular designs that we can save, we can save on these costs rather than these uh, architecturally designed classrooms that blow out budgets. Hang on a minute. Hang on a the rules are no talking while the question's asked. So some of your colleagues were, were speaking then. Supplementary. What does she say to James Hargis, Principal and Secondary Principals Association of New Zealand Exec Member Mike Newell, who, when asked about the property cuts, said no one seemed to know what the priorities were or had been able to sit down with the new minister. So it's really fr frustrating that we have a new education minister in there and we're unsure of what her priorities are. 
Mr Speaker, I have sat down and had multiple meetings with the property team to try and get to the bottom of how it can be that we have such an enormous pipeline of raised expectations that this previous government was unable to deliver on. Uh, I can assure that minister that I am across the detail in getting to the bottom of this enormous enormous mess that they have left that we are about to, about to clean up. Question uh, number nine, the name of question number nine, the name of Laura Trask. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. My questions to the Minister of Internal Affairs: What recent announcements has she made regarding the Royal Commission's inquiry into COVID-19 lessons? Honourable Brooke Penfeld. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. On the 2nd of February, I announced that the government is delivering on its commitment to enable public input into expanding the scope of the Royal Commission of Inquiry into COVID-19 lessons. Both the ACT National and New Zealand First National Coalition Agreements recognise expanding the scope as a priority. A Royal Commission is independent, but the government sets the terms of reference. The current terms of reference of this inquiry were decided by the same government responsible for the COVID-19 response. That's why this government is open to expanding the scope of the inquiry. Supplementary. Why is the Minister consulting the public on broadening the terms of reference for the Royal Commission's inquiry? All Kiwis were impacted in some way by the previous government's policies. There were social and economic impacts of COVID-19 widely felt throughout the community. Uh, for example, in education, I've already heard from principals who say they've seen the effect of kids not being able to attend school, uh, lack of attendance, the ability for kids not to have peer groups that they're socialised with, businesses having a lack of certainty, um, stress, um, also not being deemed essential businesses. There were Aucklanders who were plunged into extended lockdowns and people unable to access uh, non-urgent healthcare, like breast cancer screening that were put on hold. We want to hear from New Zealanders. Um, and it's essential that for New Zealand to know what to do right in the future, that we're asking the right questions now. Supplementary. How can the public have their say on the terms of reference for the Royal Commission's inquiry? The public can submit through the Royal Commission's COVID inquiry website, covid19lessons.royalcommission.nz. The public submissions are open until the 24th of March 2024, and I would encourage all New Zealanders to have their say. Uh, the government will be considering the public's feedback before making any final decisions on the scope of the inquiry. Thank you. Supplementary. Oh. To the Minister of Internal Affairs, can the inquiry's terms of reference be expanded further than what's been suggested based on public submissions? Uh, yes, there were nine bullet points put forward by the coalition government after consultation and cabinet. Uh, the government will take public submissions into consideration before uh, finalising new terms of reference. Supplementary, supplementary, Mr Speaker. Can she provide an update on what the next steps are for the positions and vacancies of the COVID-19 inquiry commissioners? Uh, there are currently two commissioners for the COVID-19 inquiry. The third member of the commission, Hikia Parata, resigned prior to the election. Uh, my first steps have been to open up the scope of inquiry by inviting public submissions, uh, but now I'm turning my mind to the membership of the Royal Commission. I've asked for advice on appointments, and I will be uh, consulting with my coalition partners throughout this process. Supplementary, right on the Mr. Peter. On the question of Hekia Parata having resigned, has she found out that, first of all, she was offering a resignation, the then Prime Minister, Mr. Hipkins, persuaded her not to uh, proceed with her resignation, but it came too late because the Minister in charge had accepted a resignation and therefore there was a fait accompli by mistake. Minister, you're the Minister. Well, who's answering the question here? Yeah. <laughs> Do both, but uh, just say yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, uh, Right Honourable Winston Peters. It's very helpful. We'll leave it at that.
Thank you. We're going to question 10. In the name of Tangi Utakiri. Uh, Kirana, Mr. Speaker, my question is to the Minister of Transport. How does he expect Auckland Council to meet the $1.2 billion funding hole over the next four years to meet the costs of transport projects that the regional fuel tax was to fund as priority projects for Auckland? Honourable Simeon Brown. Oh, thank you, Mr Speaker. I disagree with the member's assertion. Removing the Auckland regional fuel tax will save Aucklanders at the pump $150 million per year, or $600 million over the next four years, not the $1.2 billion mentioned. Around $341 million of regional fuel tax revenue remains unspent, and the government will ring-fence these funds to deliver the priority projects such as the Eastern Busway, City Rail Link trains and local roads. If Auckland Council wants to continue to fund cycle lanes, red light cameras, $500,000 speed bumps and blanket speed limit reductions, they are welcome to put that proposal forward to Aucklanders. Supplementary. What percentage of the Auckland regional fuel tax revenue gathered to date has been used to fund projects such as cycle lanes, red light cameras and pedestrian crossings in Auckland? Well, of the, uh, I think, $700 million that has been raised to date, around $340 million, uh, almost half of it remains unspent. Uh, so that's, that's, that's a fail on the former government. Uh, the second point is around over $100 million was spent on the safety improvement projects, which was basically speed bumps. Uh, and then a whole lot of other bus lanes and cycle lanes uh, receive funding as well. What we want to focus that money on is that the remaining funding is on the priority projects and not wasting it on low-value priorities. Uh, point of order. Thank you, Point of order. Oh, point of order. Mr Speaker, that was a very specific question that, that followed the member's uh, response to the primary. It was the member, the minister who cited some of the very items that I asked him in my first supplementary. Okay, it was a percentage. Thank you. Thank you, sir. What percentage of the Auckland regional fuel tax revenue gathered to date has been used to fund projects such as cycle lanes, red light cameras and pedestrian crossings in Auckland? Well, if you look at the amount which is allocated to various elements, uh, around 100 and over $100 million allocated to those uh, particular initiatives, but $300 million is unspent, and I would encourage the member to put the uh, formal percentage question to Auckland Council to get the finer detail. The Honourable James Shaw. A point of order, Mr. Just to uh, reiterate the point um, made by uh, uh, Tangi Utikiri, uh, he did ask specifically about the money that has been spent, uh, and that was specific. Uh, the Minister did not address the question of what has been spent. He gave an answer about what had been allocated and unspent, and that's a different question. Well, I think if you have a look at the Hansard record, you'll find he started by saying uh, on the, the points that were raised in the question around $100 million, and I think that's a reasonable answer. Tony um, Utakiri. What commitments? If any, has the Minister given to Auckland Council about his government's commitment to Auckland's transport infrastructure and what additional funding has he agreed to look into? Well, uh, thank you for the question, uh, Mr Speaker. We are currently working through our government policy statement on transport, uh, which will include investment in our roads of national significance, uh, which, includes, uh, and, and which includes projects within Auckland. Um, that government talked a huge game when it came to Auckland and transport. Remember Auckland Light Rail? $228 million for consultants, no delivery. We're going to be a government that delivers, not just talks. Apologies, Mr Speaker, but again, this is a very specific question to the Minister about commitments that he has given to Auckland Council. Now, his rhetoric might be fine for himself but he has decided not to specifically address the question. Well, I think he addressed it by saying the government is currently working through uh, the, the National Transport Plan. Supplementary. What does the Minister say in response to Auckland Mayor Wayne Brown's view? This is a problem that can't be solved just by making cuts. Every Aucklander agrees that our transport system is a mess and it's going to cost a lot of money to fix. That money must come from somewhere, unfortunately, the government has just made it a lot harder for us. Well, I, well, I say to, well, I say to the, uh, the member, uh, we are not going to be a government which taxes Aucklanders to fund 
$500,000 speed bumps. That is not our priority. We want to invest in the infrastructure which actually makes a difference. And that means ring-fencing the remaining funds to the Eastern Busway, the City Rail Link, uh, local roading projects, and we'll have a range of funding and financing tools which help ensure we have the tools to deliver infrastructure across New Zealand for New Zealanders. Honourable Nicola Willis. Uh, how much would a Aucklander driving, for example, a Toyota Hilux or a Toyota Corolla save every time they fill up at the pump thanks to this government's focus on removing the regional fuel tax and helping address the cost of living? Well, that's a very good question, and this is all about the cost of living for Aucklanders. If someone's driving a Hilux, they'll save around $9 every time they fill up their car. Someone who's driving a Corolla, around $5, and that's money that won't be funding $500,000 speed bumps in Auckland. Supplementary. Is it in fact the case that his attempt to give relief at the pump with the one hand and his desire to take critical transport projects away with the other is because he has hit his own speed bump and wobbles and instead he is quite content on committing Auckland to more gridlock as a result of the government's inability to fund our largest city's proposed transport projects. Well, the gridlock in Auckland was caused by that government who spent six years saying they're going to deliver Auckland Light Rail $228 million and nothing to deliver. City Rail Link started by National will be completed by National. We electrified the Auckland Rail Network. We completed the motorway network. That government did nothing for Auckland over six years. Supplementary, Mr Speaker. Supplementary. Supplementary, Mr Speaker. At the start of uh, uh, the last question, there was talk on both sides of the House, so it would have been difficult to single out anyone. Just saying again, if people are asking a question, they get to ask it in silence. Supplementary, Mr Speaker? Um, the Honourable... Uh, <sighs> Damien O'Connor. I'm just a new member. Just, 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 just for clarity, I've known him since 19... Yeah. Whatever. 80s. Don't go... We can't go back that far. No, it was actually 72. Anyway, carry on. Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, a question to the Minister. Can the Minister tell us the average price of a litre of 91 fuel in Auckland today and how that compares to the $2.95 that people are paying in Westport? Well, when I drove past the, the local Z on the way to the airport on Monday, it was around $2.88, uh, $2.90 a litre for a 91. Thank you. Uh, now I have uh, question number 11. Question, question number 11, in the name of Catherine Webb. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Emergen Emergency Management and Recovery. What recent announcements has he made regarding cyclone recovery? Honourable Mark Mitchell. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Firstly, can I acknowledge that tomorrow is the one-year anniversary of Cyclone Gabriel, which caused much devastation across the North Island. I'm looking forward to being on the ground in Napier and Hastings tomorrow to be with the communities there and to attend the commemoration event in Hastings. The devastation caused by the cyclone was profound, and I'm proud to be part of a government that is firmly focused on ways that the response can be accelerated so that people have answers and can move on with their lives. I'm pleased to share in the House that on Sunday, the Prime Minister and I visited Napier and alongside a tour of Bearsley Farm, which was hit particularly hard, and celebrating the hard-working first responders and volunteers across the region, we made a significant announcement of $63 million to support and accelerate the clean-up of silt and debris in both Tairawhiti and Hawke's Bay. Supplementary. Uh, where is the funding going? The funding will be split across respective councils. $40 million is going to Hawke's Bay Regional Council for urgent work to continue to remove sediment and debris across the region, with $3 million of that ring fence for debris removal in Wairoa. Right. The Gisborne District Council will receive $23.6 million to ensure urgent work will continue for the processing and removal of woody debris across the region. Supplementary. What feedback has he had from locals on the ground? Well, Hawke's Bay and Tairawhiti are two regions that are very well served by their local members of parliament. 
They are regularly in touch with me, providing me feedback about the recovery. Additionally, I have had lots of positive feedback from communities and people that I have met and engaged with in the region, who welcome the funding and who have called it a boost for, the local, for local employment and said that the clearing of silt and debris is a high priority in terms of restarting the region's economy and freeing up productive land. Supplementary. What is the government's approach to the recovery? Well, we're firmly focused on delivering a system that delivers better outcomes and gets the recovery happening in a much quicker way. The message to the people affected by Cyclone Gabriel is that this government is listening and working as hard as it can to speed up this recovery. We are behind you. Question number 12, in the name of Chloe Swarbrick. The Prime Minister, does he stand by his government's statements and actions? Uh, yes, in the context they were delivered. Supplementary, does he agree with Christopher Luxon who said, and I quote, there is no point building back houses if we don't have flood protection in place, end quote. And if so, is he concerned that more than 1,400 homes have been consented in Auckland floodplains since Auckland anniversary floods? Uh, that is exactly what I believe and what, I'm, what we need to work hard on is making sure that we can move through pro uh, property categorisation in a much quicker way. I've asked for a weekly update on that so that we can make sure that job's getting done across the cyclone-affected regions. Why then did his government roll back, under urgency no less, the last government's RMA reforms, which Victoria University Economics of Disasters and Climate Change Chair Elan Noy said were, quote, way better, end quote, than the status quo he's returned us to? Uh, because it stultified New Zealand and stopped investment and infrastructure happening and it wouldn't have helped this problem. Is urban sprawl good or bad for climate mitigation and adaptation? We, we need both city densification and we need to open up new green fields and new green spaces too. Uh, Mr Speaker, if I may, point of order. Well, are you going to call one? A point of order, Mr Speaker. Chloe Swarbrick, point of order. The question was relatively straightforward. Is urban sprawl good or bad? for climate adaptation and mitigation. The Prime Minister did not answer that question. Yeah, the member will know that you can't, you can't ask for uh, definitive yes, no or good, no. bad answers. You can simply get an answer. And the answer was, the way I heard it, they're both good and bad. All right, Mr Speaker, it'll stand on its own then. Uh, supplementary. No, 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 don't, don't make those comments. Just ask your supplementary. Supplementary, Mr Speaker. Will the government's policy decisions increase or decrease urban sprawl? Uh, we want to make sure that people who can get houses have access to houses. We have a major problem in our housing market here in New Zealand. It's linked by the fact that if you can't own a house, you end up having to rent a house. If you can't rent one, you end up on a social house wait list. If you can't get a social house wait list, you end up in emergency housing. We are determined to solve housing in New Zealand. We're going to do that job. Get a party. Get a party. Supplementary, Mr Speaker. Does the Prime Minister agree with Christopher Luxon, who said that climate adaptation is going to require, quote, bipartisan support, end quote, and if so, will he commit to restarting cross-party work as started under the former government on climate adaptation within this parliamentary sitting block? Uh, yes, our climate change minister uh, agrees with me that we want to be able to make sure we can work in a bipartisan way to make sure we deal with climate adaptation, which has impacts over multiple generations, with landowners, local government, central government, insurers and banks involved. So we're very comfortable moving forward in the same manner as the previous minister of climate change did. That, come, that uh, concludes oral questions for the day.